We're in a series where we're looking at the church's menu selection each Sunday morning. We're looking at the liturgy, and we're looking to find why we do what we do, how each element from even the beginning of a welcome to a call to worship, to a, a, a hymn, to a confession of sin, to assurance of pardon, the gospel coming early in the service, to the, the reading aloud of Scripture and the preaching of God's Word. We're, we're looking at each one of these as having an important bearing upon the gospel that we possess individually being rehearsed corporately or together as a family. This morning we're going to look at creeds, confessions of faith, also catechisms. And we're not going to look at each one specifically, but each of those can serve as a confession where corporately, as a tool, where corporately we confess our faith together. And one of the goals is to not simply to come together on Sunday morning and confess our faith, whether it's through a hymn or the Apostles' Creed or a portion of the Heidelberg Catechism or even a many, many creeds and confessions are given in the Scripture. It's not simply that we would rehearse the good news, that we have, we have knowledge of God. He's, he's not just a mysterious figure in the heavens. He's given us great, great knowledge to base our faith upon. It's not that we just say it together as a family, but in rehearsing our faith by reciting it together, we remember it. We begin to drill it down into our heart so that we carry it forward from here into our individual day and our individual everyday worship. And that's where we're headed. We're headed to understand this morning three things about creeds. Number one, why do you need a creed? Why do I need a creed? And the I there is a Christian. Why do I, as a believer, need a creed? Particularly a man-made, man-written creed. All I need is the Bible, right? Secondly, why do we need a creed. Why does a church, why does a fellowship, why does a community of believers need a creed? Why do we need something that we all stand up as we have just done and recite? And then lastly, I want us to look in conclusion as to why do they need a creed? Now we're moving to those that are in our sphere of influence. They're in our circle of what I would call accountability. My mission field, my neighborhood, my workplace, my school that I attend, the culture and the community that I find myself. If I were to draw a uh, two to three mile radius here, this community, why do those that do not yet have a relationship with God through Christ, why do they need a creed? Well, I'll look at that. But first, Let's look and see why I need a creed. And I want to tell you as we get started here, the big idea this morning, something that is, a, is a, a key takeaway for you is this. 
everyone has a creed. Everyone has a creed. Everyone has a creed. The atheist can say, I do not believe that God exists. Or he could say, as we fashion it in the Apostles' Creed, where three times, parenthetically, we say, I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in God the Father. I believe in the Holy Spirit. An atheist could say, well, I believe in no God. That's a creed. Secondly, someone could say, well, I'm not an atheist. I believe that God is love. I believe that that God is all love. I believe that, that God is only love. That's their creed. They could say, I don't believe in any man-written creed. I don't believe in any man-made creed. I don't believe in the Apostles' Creed, per se. I just believe that God is a God of love. We had a, um, uh, it's been probably a year ago, we were actually looking at a very large, and I won't give the denomination, we were looking at a very large church in this area that the congregation had so declined that they were, we were approaching them about the purchase of their building or perhaps even leasing their sanctuary for our worship services. And the woman pastor who met me there to walk through the building and show us around, she knew that we were of a Reformed church. And she said, "Um, what are some of the things that you believe? She said, we believe that God is a God of love. And I said, well, okay, he is. That's one of his many, many characteristics. God is truly love, real love. Um, Not just romantic love or wishy-washy love, but love that really has teeth. And we began to talk back and forth, and I realized that her creed, though she was a pastor, though she was the head of a church, her creed was different from our church, from my creed. That creed separated us. And I believe that she could possibly say, well, I don't have any creed. I just believe this with my heart. And I would say, that's your creed. The creed that we look at this morning here in the Scriptures, this is where Paul says, for I delivered, in verse 3, to you of first importance what I also received. What he's saying is, I've received these truths from God. I've gleaned them from my study of the Scriptures. And in looking at the breadth and the depth of the Scriptures, I see a storyline there. And I see things that tell me and give me intimate knowledge of God and of man. And because I've received it, I now pass over these things to you. And you need this because individually, as you look at verses 1 and 2, it does two things. Number one, a creed will allow you to stand in the face of other creeds or false creeds. And secondly, a creed will allow you to experience an ever-present, ongoing, 
salvation, our process of being constantly reformed, constantly transformed, constantly renewed, constantly strengthened, which theologically we call the process of active sanctification. But it does so because I do the work, I do the work of reciting, rehearsing, internalizing the creed. Look at, look at verse 1. I preach to you which you received, in which you stand. In other words, in this world, you're going to experience gravity that makes to want you, wants to push you down and fall down. What is your creed? How would a creed allow you to withstand other false creeds? For instance, in this last year, I have heard that God, it's God's idea for same-sex marriage. I have heard that it's God's idea, not for the, the sanctity of human life, for the protection of the unborn, but it's God's idea for women, for women to be given the right to abort or murder their baby. And I'm like, well, which God are we talking about here? What, what creed do you believe? And, and as people began to articulate it, it can come off like a jumble, but everybody has a creed. And if I don't have a creed, if I don't know a creed, I won't be able to stand against that. I won't be able to refute that. And by the way, we can show all respect and treat everybody with dignity as we challenge their creed with our creed. We're not trying to, to win an argument as much as we're saying, well, here's what I base my thinking, my beliefs, my faith. This is where my faith is articulated in the form of a creed, don't you understand that this is what your creed looks like? And so our creed allows us to stand in the face of other creeds, false creeds, false gospels, false beliefs. But if you don't have a creed, you're not going to stand. You're going to look very weak when these topics come up and you're asked or invited to share your opinion or to weigh in. You may attempt to share an opinion, but what is it based upon? And so Paul says here, I pass this on to you. Job 4.4. 4. Now these, this is Job. This is his counselors. These are others, neighbors, that are speaking about Job. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble needs. And so what is being said here is other people are saying, look, your faith, your articulated faith, your confession of faith, whatever form it took, your ability to articulate your bedrock beliefs have made us strong. They have strengthened us. They help us to not have weak knees. Secondly, the Apostle Paul says here that it is by these creeds, by these very words which contain the gospel, that by them you are being saved, verse 2. 
unless you believed in vain. And we didn't read this verse, but if you went over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as far as verse 34, you would read, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. In other words, he says, he's talking to the church here. And when he says, some of you don't have any knowledge of God, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to us. And he's saying, many of you are Christians, but your actions betray you as a very bad theologian. Your theology, that is your knowledge of God, is weak or non-existence at all. And he said, because of that, you are living and acting just like the world. Your very knowledge can actually save you and transform you. Romans 10, verses 8, 9, and 10. And Paul here is talking about the impact of God's Word as contained in the Law of Moses, where he says it contains a form of righteousness, a form of making things right and reforming and transforming things. The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Notice it's in those two places. It's not just my heart, but it's verbalized, it's recited. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. So they had some body of faith. That's why we call it the Apostles' Creed. We don't know who wrote it, but we know that you look in the lives and the preaching and the teaching, the letters to the church of the apostles, over and over again, we see this storyline contained in the Apostles' Creed. We are sinners. Jesus Christ has died for us. We see it played out here in chapter 15, where it says, Christ died for our sins. Verse 4, he was buried. Verse 4, he was raised on the third day, as the scriptures said would happen. Verse 5, he then appeared to man. He returned in a bodily form, not as a ghost. Verse 8, he appeared, Paul said, to me. Verse 9, we didn't, re- didn't have that in our reading, but he said, he appeared to those that were unworthy. Verse 20, Christ was raised from the dead with a promise that he's the first fruit of all those that die. That those that die in relationship with Christ, they're promised on his return that one day we will too rise again bodily, not as ghosts, to do what? Down to verse 23. Christ the first fruit, then it is coming those who belong to Christ, Then, verse 24, comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. At the end, he's going to set all things right, even as he set his people right. And when the kingdom is finally delivered, when he can say, sealed, done, enemies are vanquished, including no more death. Now things work in reverse. Life and life and life and life and life and life and life eternally. He says, my people who are resurrected, will live with me. I will be the king that the Father now says, take your rightful seat as the king who has by your love, as the Lamb of God, purchased these people, not to be servants, not even to be friends, but to be sons and daughters and rule on high forever and ever. 
That's the story. A people of God who fell into sin, who were a plan to redeem them, began in Genesis. He rescues those people at the cost of his own life. He transforms them through the work of the Holy Spirit. He is saving us now to do what? To now turn to the nations and to be priests, to be holy sons and daughters who are like people in love with God the Father so that we can be a part as ambassadors to rescue more people, to be redeemed, to be transformed, to be reformed so that they can go out and tell the good news to others for the eventual living in God's kingdom forever. If you can contain that in a creed, if we can recite this as a church to the degree that it begins to incorporate itself into my everyday worship, we will be a people who are good theologians and I think winsome ambassadors. And we're going to look at that in just a second. We will constantly be being transformed and reformed even by a creed. Whether it's written as the form of an Apostles' Creed or a catechism, scriptures, or a song or other confessions of faith. Martin Luther, the great reformer, believed this so much that if you could peer into his everyday worship, which he's famous for praying an hour a day, well, he's tipped his hand when he wrote a letter to his barber who asked, how do you pray? How do I, how do I pray like that? And so he wrote a letter to his barber. And he had three things that he included that he would systematically articulate in his everyday worship or his quiet time. And as he looked at each individual item of faith, he would follow it with a prayer. He had the Lord's Prayer. He would look at each item. He had the Ten Commandments, another confession of faith, by the way. He would look at each item and he would follow it with a prayer. And then he had the Apostles' Creed. And he would look at each line of that creed and then he would pray. Because he knew that a creed had the power to help us to stand in this life where the gravity is against us, but also it would constantly save us and transform us. Well, how does it do? Look at the we. Why do we need a creed? Well, there are four reasons. Number one is to refute heresy. It's to refute heresy. A creed allows us to say, you say this of God, we say this of God, our knowledge of God is based upon his word that he gave us. It's based upon what our teachers have received. We need a fellowship, we need a community. None of us, none of us individually is as smart as all of us. I need smarter theologians and a collection of theologians throughout history building upon each other to study the scriptures that I might be able to learn a creed that captures the verities of truth. Or to put it differently, we need a whole crew at work in the mind to find those gems that they bring to the surface that we can now have as treasure that we can spend. We need other people. In other words, that's why we need man-written creeds 
but based upon the Scriptures. A creed not based upon the Scripture is going to be, in all likely, heresy. I, um, I had the privilege to, and I love weddings. I love conducting and officiating at weddings. And in premarital counseling, uh, many times, one of the counseling sessions is to talk about the vows that they will be exchanging. And many times, I'll have a couple, they'll say, well, you know, uh, we really like the traditional vows, and we're thinking about including them, but we want to write our own vows. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. I just reserve the right to edit them, okay? Well, why would you do that? Well, you know, you don't want to say something crazy, right? You don't want to say something like, you don't want to suddenly surprise your future mate up there by saying, and I will love you as long as you give me foot rubs and back massages every day. Uh, you know, you, know you, you, can't, you can't include vows that have conditions upon them. And, and they're like, oh, okay. And so many times they'll come back and they'll say, wow, under some of the guidelines that you've given us, we can't write a better creed, a better set of vows, a better set of beliefs than the traditional ones. We can't, whatever we do, we start adding more and more of our own conditions, more and more of our limited understanding, where we need the depth of the ages. It ensures consistent teaching. We all believe this. You can go to any church that says, yes, we stand upon the creed of the Apostles' Creed, and there's a uniformity there. And you can say, well, isn't that mindless conformity? No. We want to understand each article, each set of beliefs that is contained in something such as the Apostles' Creed, but it allows us to be in the same family because now we're reciting the same faith and the same values and the same truth. There's a sameness about it. Let me, and you might say, okay, I've I've got it, I'm understanding. And then that sameness creates fellowship with other churches. I don't care how you baptize people. I don't care how you celebrate the Lord's Supper. I don't care if you're a Calvinist or many. I do care about that, but... It's not going to separate me from fellowship. But if you say, my creed is the same as your creed. In other words, Jesus came, and by his death he rescued us, completely forgave us of our sin. We did not earn it, it was complete grace. And we are promised resurrection in him, and we're going to dwell with him on high forever as sons and daughters. We're together along with things that are thrown in about you know, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's full-orbed in the Apostles' Creed. But here, Paul was talking to the Corinthian church, and he could say, you're going to differ from the church in Galatia and the church in Philippi, but over there, I'm giving them what I also received from the Lord, from my study of Scripture, from my companionship with the other apostles. And then to present the truth of the gospel in a concise form. And that'll be our last point. But before I leave the we, let me tell you, the creed helps me when I get lost. It's a map. And when I hear you recite it, 
whether articulating it and reciting it corporately on Sunday morning or reciting it in a conversation, maybe not even mindful that you're reciting it, but you're, you're talking about, I believe that Christ forgives sinners. I believe it. I believe that there is a, a, a resurrection day. This is not it. This is battlefield earth. That is heaven and eternal life with God. No more death. When you do that, you're telling me you're still following the map. It's on the hike. I may, not, I may lose my way on the hike. I may not know where I am on the hike. But when I'm with you and you know, then you keep me strong. And my faith wanders. There are times that I am filled with serious doubts. But at those times, you glow and you strengthen me because you don't have a doubt at all. Your reciting the faith, your keeping the faith draws me back. It draws me back. When I hear you stand and say, I believe this. I believe that God is my Father. And I say, God, please help me. You just, I just haven't really felt like you were fatherly toward me recently. It just seems like you're indifferent at best. But Lord, you are a Father. You are a Father. You are a Father. You're a, they, I've got a whole team of people. I've got a whole family saying, He's the Father. You bring me back. And we strengthen one another when we stand and say, this is our faith, even though some of us at points will have doubts. Like a map, a theological map, it will bring us back. And you say, well, what's the proof of that? He gives you three examples. He gives you, down in verse, um, verse 5, he said he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. What did Peter do? Peter was a close, intimate disciple. He was one of the three. There was three of them. There was Jesus, John, and Peter. They were tight. He was one of the three. He was kind of one of those wingmen. And he denied Christ when it counted the most. Christ, following his resurrection, I would have probably kicked Peter to the curb. If I had met with him at all, I would have had words that had been harsh and hurtful to him. But Jesus didn't. Jesus sought him out to be reconciled to him. That's the faith that we believe. That's the faith and that's our creed. And Paul is saying this creed is going to impact the we of how we treat people who their actions or even their words at times may betray and deny Jesus Christ. We don't kick them to the curb. We go after them. We even have church discipline. We're not going after them to kick them to the curb. We're going after them to say, we love you. We want you. Be a part of us. Be reconciled to God and be reconciled with us. Let's go together. That's our creed. And then he uses James. You see, James in verse 7, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James was a brother of Jesus. And James was one of those who labeled Jesus Christ crazy. There were a group of people that were, had begun to follow Christ. 
And they began to respond to him. And they began to look and say, maybe he's the Messiah, meaning the anointed one, the Christ. The one that's promised to be our deliverer, our rescuer. Our king, so that we would rule and reign on high. He, he's the Christ, I tell you. And the family said, we got to go stop this. And there is James with his other siblings, and I don't know the number. And they go to a house, and there it's recorded. So they must have said it to the crowd. Hey, let us get through here. We're family. We're going to institutionalize this guy. He's just nuts. Hey, dismissing him. He was one. A family member calling him crazy that Jesus goes to him. And then Paul lists himself in verse 8 saying, last of all, to one untimely born, he appealed also to me. And we read in verse 9 that Paul states right here, guilty as charged, I was a persecutor. We don't know if he physically murdered anyone, but he oversaw the death of Stephen. We know that he incarcerated many believers in Christ that would have met a martyr's death. And Paul's saying, even to me, that persecuted his loved ones, that kicked his children, brutalized his children such that he would say, you're persecuting me, Paul, when he appeared to him on the Damascus Road. He came to me. That's our creed, folks. And as Paul reminds me in the Scriptures, I can remind you, but you remind me also when I deny, or when I think Christ is crazy, this Christianity is nuts, or when I persecute, I'm critical, or gossipy, or murder the character of somebody else. Our creed is weak, and it pulls us back, and it shows us how we are treated by God, and how that is reflected in our actions I uh, finally wanted to uh, look at how the um, how it affects they out there, and this is important because if you don't have a creed, then you're going to be left with an empty bag when people ask you, Christian, because I've identified you as a Christian. What do you believe? What do you believe? Sitting next to the person on the airplane and they say, I saw you reading your Bible. Um, my mom used to read her Bible. You're a Christian. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. So I, I've, I haven't really ever been a part of a church, which statistically the majority of people now that you're going to encounter have no background in church at all. They... They don't know the, the wonderful stories of the Bible. They don't know the great truths that we hold dear to heart. That we recite over and over again that they become creedal confessions of our faith. And so they look and they say, you know, I've never really been religious or even spiritual, but I'm kind of curious, what, what's, a, what's a Christian believe? What would you say? Well, you should be embarrassed, as I should be embarrassed, if I go, well, I've never really thought about that. Walter Hooper was a friend of C.S. Lewis. And he said, one day we went out for a walk, and we got on the oddest conversation. He said, we began to talk, 
And imagine if a Martian spaceship landed out in the field or the park near where we were walking, and Martians got out, first of all, people would probably just fall over in shock, but if they got over the shock, and they engaged the Martian in a conversation, and the Martian asked them, you know, we've heard about Christianity. We've heard that all of England is a Christian nation. So as a Christian, what do you believe? And C.S. Lewis and Walter Hooper concluded that the Martians would have been left in all great likelihood to get back on their spaceship and fly away, never knowing any more than when they first arrived. That the average Christian on the street can't articulate a statement of their faith. They can't articulate even five items of their creed. Why is it important? Because there is a vacuum there where I find that people are either hungry, this is people that they out there that don't know Christ yet, they're either hungry or they're hostile. And you really are taking a chance. You just don't know until you engage them in a conversation. But in that conversation, if you find somebody a hungry, a hungry person, we need to feed them. And we need to feed them not just with my opinions, baseless opinions, but we need to inform them on what we stand, on what is saving us, on what we find in the Scriptures to be principal truths about God and about man. G.K. Chesterton wrote a whole book on the Apostles' Creed. Now, I, other than the introduction, I haven't found the word Apostles' Creed used anywhere in his book, Orthodoxy. What he uses is the word philosophy, saying that everybody has a philosophy. And he wrote a book prior to Orthodoxy called Heresies. He wasn't planning on writing a book about the Apostles' Creed, about a group philosophy, except someone, a Mr. Street, who wrote him and said, in response to his book on heresy, he said, I will begin to worry about my philosophy when you have given me yours. I will not call it, Chesterton says, I will not call it my philosophy, for I did not make it. God and humanity made it, and it made me. So what is happening here is that G.K. Chesterton is, is writing, he said, I, the reason I wrote Orthodoxy is because I saw in the book Heresy that I was explo- as I was exploring and helping people to discover the shortcomings and how unhelpful for life and freedom and joy their own personal philosophy was, that it created a vacuum. And that they said, I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to worry about throwing my philosophy overboard until you tell me what your philosophy is that you want me to consider bringing on board. And he said, fair enough. Fair enough. And in that lay the way of evangelism. Think about this as I conclude. The Heidelberg Catechism, 
very first question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Can I tell you? Can I tell you? That is the number one question. If they will tell you in a relationship that an unbeliever, a lost person, has on their mind. Now there's a lot of stuff that they do to... uh, to shelter themselves, to try to protect themselves from ever acknowledging that question is on their mind. But they don't have peace about the chaos in this life and the reasons behind it and the purpose of their life and the meaning of their life, nor do they have peace, any sense of comfort about the life to come. What if you could answer that for them? What if you could at least say, this is what I believe, a creed becomes your testimony. And I could, I, could, I could do no better than recommend that you just commit to memory the first response to the Heidelberg Catechism. What's my comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but I belong, body and soul, life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, And he set me free from the tyranny of the devil. I'm no longer subject to bondage, addictions. Not like I was. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. I'm never alone again. Others have failed me, but he is always with me watching. He's awake even when I sleep. In fact, All things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That's a testimony. That's an evangelism tool, as it were. That's a, a way to share our faith. It's a faith that we can articulate with a confession, with a creed, via a catechism. What's my point? I need a creed. I need a creed that I know is true. And I need a creed that you equally know is true, so in unity with you and in your family, We can keep one another encouraged and strong. And then we can face a listening, watching world and say, this is what we believe. And we can be clear in our our articulation of it. And we can be winsome in our articulation of it. And they will hear. And they will respond. They will respond and say, at least, minimally, that group of people know what they believe. And at best, they will say, wow, in the face of my small beliefs, I'm willing to accept that understanding of God and of man for myself such that our creed becomes their creed, even if it's become my creed. And that's why we do this. That's why we state our faith an Apostles' Creed or Catechisms or the Confession of Faith. And we also do it this morning as we come to this table. 
when you come to this table, you're physically acting out a confession of faith. Your creed. You're coming to this table, and when you take of this bread, you're saying, I recognize, just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, that Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he was broken, he said, this represents my body broken in your place. I believe that. So when you take the bread, you're saying, this is my testimony. This is what I believe for myself, and I believe I'm in a church family that believes it. And we believe it's true for others when they receive Christ. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, the cup, the cup of wine represents my shed blood for the washing away of all sins for any who would drink of it. Do this in remembrance of me. So I believe that not only am I forgiven, but all sins, past, present, even future, are washed away as through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm constantly being reformed and transformed into a son or daughter. And finally, he said, as often as you do it, as often as you celebrate this table, you celebrate as a congregation and a church family my death on your behalf until I return. So we recite it and we celebrate it again and again and again with a prayer that coming to this table, just like the reciting of a creed, never becomes rote, but that the gospel story is just as precious, just as moving, just as thrilling as when we first heard it. That makes this a table of celebration of our faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take this humble bread and this cup to seal to our hearts what we have learned. That your scriptures contain wonderful truths. And as a congregation, we don't just recite them in creeds and confessions and catechism. We sing them. For they are true for us. They are true for me. And we celebrate your death on, your, on our behalf until that promised day of your return. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.